Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? What, what is Dancing with a Black Elephant? Who's Dancing with a Black Elephant? Dancing with the Black Elephant? From Yeshiva University, this is Andrew Boyarski, and you are listening to Dancing with the Black Elephant. This episode is one in a series on the emergency response to Hurricane Sandy. We have with us today Kelly McKinney, who is the Senior Director of Emergency Management and Enterprise Resilience at NYU Langone Medical Center in New York City. From 2013 to 2016, he was the Chief Disaster Officer at the American Red Cross in Greater New York, where he led crisis response in the largest and busiest Red Cross region in the U.S. From 2006 to 2003, Mr. McKinney was Deputy Commissioner for Preparedness at the New York City Office of Emergency Management, where he built the New York City preparedness infrastructure for a range of external threats. Thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today, Kelly. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be here. So my first question for you uh, is Hurricane Sandy, which took place about five years ago around this time, uh, it took the route that we often use during exercises with it coming out of the Turks and Caicos. Can you tell me what happened when you first heard that Hurricane Sandy was about 96 hours out or until when you first heard the alert around Hurricane Sandy? Yes. So, you know, you're, you're exactly right. Hurricane Sandy... It came in, it made landfall in um, uh, just north of Atlantic City, New Jersey, five years ago, Monday, October 29th, 2012. And so that was a Monday night when it arrived on the Jersey Shore. And uh, we had heard and, and, and got the forecast for it as early as Tuesday morning, so, so almost six days prior to that. And uh, there were low confidence models. They weren't, there wasn't a high confidence and it had to do with a, a convergence of, of weather fronts that were impacting its path. And so those early forecasts actually showed Sandy going out to sea. And the 96 hour forecast showed that Sandy was going to be what we call a fish storm. It was going to trend out to sea. Um, but then the model showed that a couple of uh, weather fronts uh, in North America were going to converge and actually draw Sandy back toward the uh, eastern seaboard. And, uh, and it, so if, if people remember that track, it actually took a pretty hard uh, left-hand turn. And then uh, from that point, it, 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 it moved very quickly uh, into landfall. But the interesting thing about Sandy, uh, well, there are many interesting things about Sandy. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I um, ask at cocktail parties is why do they call uh, Sandy a superstorm? Do you know why they call Sandy a superstorm? I may get this wrong, but I will try it. So there were two sort of cyclonic effects sort of coming in at one another, and it wasn't classically at the time a hurricane. So it couldn't really be classified as a hurricane. Although if you look at FEMA, FEMA did call it a hurricane for disaster event purposes. So that is a, that's a correct statement. Uh, it's not the correct answer to the question, but it's a correct statement. So, and, and that is something else that I, that I uh, want to talk about in terms of the 96 hour forecast. But uh, it, Sandy was called a superstorm because of a characteristic of hurricanes called the RMW, 
That's the radius of maximum winds. So the radius of maximum winds is the um, is the the distance from the uh, from the center of the storm at which the maximum wind speed is measured, as you would expect, right? And the radius of maximum wind for a typical hurricane is in the order of of uh, 20 to 40 miles. And for Sandy, it was 110 miles, the radius of maximum wind. So it was, it was three times larger in, in geographic size than a typical hurricane. Uh, in fact, uh, it was, the, the storm itself was, was as large as the, the European continent. It was just an enormous storm. So, but that radius of maximum winds uh, factor is, was important because it really influenced the surge, the storm surge. But going back to what you said, so there was a characteristic of this storm. You know, it came late in the season, very late. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the unofficial end of the hurricane season is November 1st. This was coming in, in the last week of October. And the storm itself was forecast to not be a hurricane upon landfall. It was forecast to, to go extra tropical. So it would not be a tropical cyclone at landfall. And so, so something happened in, uh, in, in our process that um, you know, uh, was unusual. And it is that the, the National Hurricane Center, which takes a very active role in the run-up to a hurricane, as you might imagine. You know, they have a lot of products that they put out. There's a lot of guidance that they, that they uh, put out to emergency managers like me all the way up anywhere on the, uh, in the Gulf states and on the eastern seaboard. And that process is crystal clear and it's, and it's defined uh, and, and is worked uh, in every storm. And in fact, uh, most emergency managers, local emergency managers and state emergency managers, travel to the hurricane center for a week and, and get trained on it. And so that process is one of the best uh, uh, things that the federal government does in terms of preparing states and locals. Um, but we turned that process off for Sandy because it was not technically a tropical cyclone. So the hurricane center did not issue its uh, the forecasts on the frequency that it normally would and in fact it went dark for a lot of what it normally does and it and it pushed that responsibility to a thing called the extra tropical prediction center in Maryland and so all the way up and down the eastern seaboard all the emergency managers who had worked this process for years and we worked it for Irene the year before and it, and, and, and it was uh, you know like it, it was like clockwork very few things and processes in emergency management work uh, the way you expect them to every time, but this one was that sort of process. But it, but we didn't work it for Sandy because of, because it was not forecasted to be a hurricane. In fact, uh, the Hurricane Center did not issue hurricane warnings and watches for this storm. So that was a, a that has has been looked at in the in in, in, in since then, and uh, and it's been changed. And there's a lot of improvements that have been made since then. So with that in mind. Did, that must have impacted the time frame and how much information that you were getting from the center in Maryland and not getting necessarily from the National Hurricane Center, deploying the plans that you would expect it to, and then briefing senior people at the level of the mayor, deputy mayor, and so forth. Yes, that's exactly uh, what it did. And as, as a local emergency manager, in some respects, you work harder the week before the storm arrives than you do the week after because there are so many moving parts that you have to put into place. And in New York City, those are very large moving parts. I mean, you have, we had to activate our logistics center. We had to activate our, um, 
our emergency supply stockpile. We had to activate our uh, shelter system. And, and Andrew, you uh, know it well. You were very involved with how that was designed and built and how the staff were trained and how the staff were notified and how they were deployed. And, um, and so there are there, there, there's literally dozens and dozens of, of, of important things that have to happen in that run-up. And at the same time, you're doing one very important thing, and that is, um, that is uh, making a decision about a mandatory evacuation. That's your most important decision. And that comes from the chief executive, right? And so uh, that, and that decision is really, for us, it's based on a couple of things, but one primary thing, and that is the impacts of storm surge because storm surge is, the, is our greatest threat in, uh, at hurricane landfall. Half of the people who perish in the aftermath of a hurricane strike uh, uh, drown as a result of storm surge. It's, 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 not, a, you know, it's not a flood like people typically think. In, 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 in Hurricane Harvey in Houston, it rained for seven days straight and the water rose and the bayous rose. That's one kind of flooding that's very dangerous. But storm surge is, is even more hazardous because it comes quickly, it comes as a wall of water, it knocks you down and it drowns you. So that's the hazard that we think about when a hurricane is, is, uh, has us in its crosshairs. And, and what we want to know is where is the water going to be? What is the, what we call the AGL, which is the uh, water level above ground, the above ground level of, of water. And so that's what we um, look at and that's what we determine those evacuation orders based on. And so because we didn't have the Hurricane Center to talk to about that, because we couldn't uh, 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 have those kind, the same kinds of discussions that we had with every other storm, it did impact our decision making. And ultimately, the, the mayor issued a mandatory evacuation. It was within our timelines. But, uh, you know, in retrospect, I wish we would have been able to have those conversations um, earlier in the process. So I want to touch upon what you mentioned before, and that is a lot of the large-scale plans that were developed. What many people outside of the world of emergency management may not realize is that the large-scale response plans, such as the health evacuation center, mass care plans, uh, logistics, they take years to develop. They take resources to operationalize in terms of staff, material equipment. Can you speak to what prompted the robust uh, hurricane preparedness in New York City. So I joined the Office of Emergency Management as, Dep as Deputy Commissioner in February of 2006. Uh, hurricane Katrina made landfall uh, September 5th, 2005. And so in February of 2006, we still had a, uh, a Katrina DASC open in New York City, a disaster assistance service center for Katrina victims in New York City. So that, in many ways, that incident was ongoing. And uh, many people around the country and around the world looked at what happened in, in the Gulf states in Louisiana and, and, and New Orleans after Katrina. And most of them said the same thing, which is, we can't let that happen here. And, and we certainly did that in New York City. So it caused us to take a hard look at our coastal storm plan and ask ourselves, if we had to turn this on, it, are we ready? And we saw gaps there. And, and the gaps really had to do with how operational it was. You know, can we get these shelters open? Can we get them supplied? Can we get trained staff in there? Can we get 
Um, you know, can we uh, get the logistics uh, operation to be large enough to get us what we need when we need it? Um, and uh, can we get hospitals evacuation, uh, evacuated can, and nursing homes? Can we coordinate that effectively? And so, and we saw that there was a, a, a gap there. And so the first thing that you have to do is you have to communicate to the executive um, what the gap is, the nature of the gap, and the implications of failure in, in that situation, and then what it is that you need to do to avoid that and, and to, to be ready. And so that's a lot. You, you basically have to go in and say, here's what it would look like if this storm hit us right now today. And here is the uh, plan for how we fix that. And here's what it's going to cost. And in New York City, it was a big, big number. I can tell you it was a very big number. But, you know, talking about what it would be like if we opened a shelter and did not have enough staff in it or did not have enough supplies in it, talking about what it would be like if we were unable to, to get patients moved out of hospitals, um, that, that was clear and, and, and City Hall understood that and they knew that they, would, they could not be put into that situation. And so they gave us the resources and we spent, as you said, Andrew, we spent seven years um, developing that plan and, and testing it. And, and so when Irene came, we were in good shape and Irene was, for us, it was like a $15 million exercise because that, that hurricane had us right in its sights. And then just before it made landfall, it broke up, and it, con it, it, and it kind of went over the top of New York City, and then it just it hit uh, uh, north of us in upstate New York and Connecticut and, and, and Massachusetts. It dumped 20-plus inches of water. But for us, it didn't bring the storm surge. It didn't bring the impacts that, that, uh, that we expected. Uh, and Sandy did, obviously, but, but after all of the planning and, and all of the oper operational work that we did and then actually practicing it and we were we were well placed for for what happened during sandy let's go back to the to the response as preparations escalated in the let's say 72 to 48 hours prior to landfall can you describe the work that was going on at uh, the office of emergency management and specifically in the emergency operations center what were the key response plans that were being deployed at that time the Emergency Operations Center is this, the center of what we call the Great Machine, right? And the Great Machine is, is formally known as your ICS structure, your Incident Command System structure. It's basically when you, uh, you pull a lot of people out of their, their, the org charts that they work in every day, and you pull them into this new organization, this incident organization. And they are responsible to lead and execute a multitude of operations that are required for the response, and that includes um, that includes uh, healthcare evacuation, that includes sheltering, that includes uh, uh, down tree task force, that includes um, um, you know uh, there were probably fifteen different task forces that were activated. Uh, in uh, on that Wednesday morning, we activated the coastal storm plan on the Wednesday before uh, Monday. It was activated, and the, the coastal storm plan is actually ten different plans, and they are all attachments. And so all of those plans were activated. The key to all is what we call monitoring and decision making. And so that 
operational strategy of the plan only occurs in pre-storm. And, and its intent is to gather all of the stakeholders around that evacuation decision and get all of the input required and all of the information and all of the data and to come to a decision about what we recommend to the executive about an evacuation. And so those are the most important conversations happening. And we had them every four hours with all the stakeholders and the weather service talking about the forecast and talking about the impacts and talking about storm surge. And, um, that is the most important conversation that's happening. But again, all those other task force are working. They come in every four hours and report out on their progress. But it's really, a, it's a great machine. There's all of these different pieces of the machine that are working, but they're all connected together in, uh, in communication, in resources. And it's a complex choreography that has to occur. And the EOC is the center of it, right? And the, uh, in, in, in New York City, uh, the EOC duty team in, in this case, it was the red team. I was the red team deputy commissioner, and the red team was up, and so we had the job for almost the entirety of the event. Are there moments that stand out for you during landfall and the period that immediately followed Sandy? Yes. The, and this is a personal moment to me, there's a couple, but the, the, I think the one that stands out the most is on that Monday night when the storm was hitting us, when the water was coming in and when, uh, you know, the radios were, were just going crazy and all of the um, search and rescue teams were out and, and uh, it was really at its maximum intensity. At that point, I just, I, I got calm. My blood pressure was up and I had been essentially running for 16, 18 hours a day for, since Tuesday morning. You know, you, it's really, an, it's such a hard week for you. And then when it finally came in, I just got calm and I said to myself, here it is. You know, this is what we've been working for. This is the job that we plan for and it's gonna be what it is. And, and I'll never forget that, that uh, you know, at its, at its peak, we just said, this is the job that we, you know, that, we, that we've been waiting for. And, uh, and that's one thing. The, I, I, I remember also shortly after that, I think it was about 11 o'clock on Monday night, the report came in to watch command that we'd lost power in Manhattan, that there was no power in Manhattan. And so we're, you know, we're at Cadman Plaza. And, and you know, when, when, when that's said, you, you, the, the question is, did we or did we not? You know, how do we verify that? So we did a lot of things. We called a lot of people. We, we um, you know, we're looking at, at uh, breaking news. We're talking to the agencies. And then we're looking out the window and, you know, we're at Cabin Plaza is at about uh, right about the Brooklyn Bridge. So it's so you're looking at lower Manhattan and sure enough, there's no there's no lights. <laughs> so, but I called my son. I called my house. Essentially, I lived uh, uh, up in Washington Heights. I, I called my house and my my 12 year old son picked up and I could hear the booms and the and the gunfire in the background really loud. And I knew. I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm playing Battlefield, right? So he was playing his video game. And I said, so you've got power. Yeah. So, and I said, thanks. And I hung up. So I knew he had power. So that was my, that was my situational awareness tool. So in the days and weeks that followed Sandy, how did the response go? And were there areas of improvement? That is the right question and the answer uh, is uh, there were areas of, of improvement. For us, we spent 
literally seven years building the coastal storm plan. And the focus of the coastal storm plan really was everything in the run-up to the storm and in the first couple of days after the storm. There were recovery plans in place, but the recovery was uh, the recovery uh, operations caused a surge that overwhelmed us and we did not they the, the recovery plans for New York City were not as operational or as robust as the response plans were and so there were there were so many things that we had to do at such a scale I mean the the uh, the dewatering operations the emergency power operations the 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 canvassing operations the the food and water operations we knew we had to do most of that and we had plans in place but they weren't nearly as operational fortunately and I'll just say that the reason that the coastal storm plan was able to be built was because of that executive buy-in not only with the mayor but with the mayor's with the deputy mayors and the deputy mayors from 2006 on were partners and, and supported and got agencies to do what we needed them to do, got us the resources we needed. And when Sand, they were with us from that Tuesday morning, uh, you know, 24 hours a day. And then when the surge hit us on the recovery side, they surged into that emergency operations center and they brought teams of people. And we were able to wrap those big problems around uh, these new teams. and. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we did accomplish an enormous amount. But, you know, that surge is what you plan for as an emergency manager. And, uh, and we did not have enough in place, but we did get enough. Uh, there was enough gas left in the tank of city government and uh, city hall surged in and, and uh, we were able to manage it. It's five years down the road from Hurricane Sandy. You look at what happened then and you look at the level of preparedness now. You're now the senior director for uh, emergency response and organizational resilience at NYU Langone. And this is before your time. At that time in Sandy, uh, NYU Langone had some major flooding. Unexpected, because as I recall on the flood map, because I was involved in a number of different exercises, whenever we looked at those flood maps, the maximum floodplain for that Cat 1, which is equivalent to what Sandy is, although you could dispute whether it's Cat 1, Superstorm, that sort of thing. The water would not have come up as far as that part of Manhattan, but right. it did. Right. And you know, water has a crazy way of behaving, and we don't always know where it's going to go. Right. This is one of the unpredictables. There's wind, there's um, high tide to deal with, and things of that nature. Um, now that you're in, at NYU Langone, What's your perception of the overall preparedness? Are you a little bit more confident, a little bit more encouraged by what you see nowadays? Unfortunately for us, the best thing that happens in the emergency manager's career are the disasters. In terms of communicating to our stakeholders the need to prepare. And NYU Langone, was uh, impacted by Hurricane Sandy. And as you said, Andrew, there, were, there was flooding that occurred and the, the, they lost power and they were forced to evacuate over 300 patients from Tisch Hospital in the midst of the storm without power, down the stairs, some, you know, uh, and, and they did an, a magnificent job of that. But when that happens, um, there is no more effective way to, uh, to, to communicate 
to the uh, to the enterprise the need to make sure that you're better prepared the next time. And so this organization that I work for got that message loud and clear, and that's why I work there and my team because they are committed to having the best emergency management enterprise resilience program in the world. So I am very confident in my own organization, and I'm also confident in, in the city of New York. And the state of New York also has great capability. I think for me, the worry that I have is, there, there are many worries. As an emergency manager, I'm a professional warrior, but I live in New York City. And yesterday afternoon at 3.15, a uh, person drove a rented truck down the west side bike path mowing down several dozen bicyclists. And that, uh, that the nature of that threat, whether it be a lone wolf or a state actor, uh, is very real for us. And this individual is from Tampa, Florida. Um, so he didn't perpetrate this in Tampa, Florida. He came to New York City to perpetrate it. And we see that all the time. So the governor said, New York City is an international symbol of freedom and democracy, and we are a target, and that is the case. And my worry is that there are people out there that are much smarter than this gentleman yesterday who perpetrated this act. You know, so, so there are people with greater intent and better capability, and they also have us in their crosshairs. And so the risks are there for us, and I'm not worried about the preparedness of my organization for that. I'm not worried about the preparedness of the city of New York for that. I'm worried about an event that's, that is so significant that it requires a national level response. And knowing what I know and having experienced what I have experienced in this business, there is not today a plan or a program or an ability to bring the resources of this country together in support of this city. And that is my greatest concern. Um, and I think if you stop somebody in New York City and you said, does the United States of America have an ability to come to the aid of New York City if there was, God forbid, a massive terror attack? They would say, well, of course they can. This is the United States. This is 2017. We have such great... Uh, uh, technology tools, we have such great resources, we have such smart people, and all of that is true, but we have not organized that in a way to bring those resources and that capability to bear in support of New York City or any other city or any other state. Um, it's not there, and that, that's, that's my biggest worry. So I want to follow up on this because I, I appreciate your point of view on that. You were involved in the development through the umbrella or under the umbrella of the Regional Catastrophic uh, Planning Team of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania that incorporated and brought to the table the different players on the tri-state area. This is the New York, New Jersey census tract, if you will. And if for those of you who are listening, you can go on the web and take a look at what that entails. Uh, it's basically the three states that come together, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, as well as one county in Pennsylvania. I right. believe that's 33 counties altogether, yeah. uh, 22 million people. And it's, the, I, it's, the, it's, the, it's, a, it's a U.S. Census uh, geographically defined area called the MSA, the Metropolitan Statistical Area. Yes. Yeah. And so there were a number of plans that, that were created a lot of planning and a lot of coordination. 
a lot of that happening uh, during Irene and Sandy, uh, and a lot of plans that were carried out. Of course, there was a lot of cooperation and cross communication that went on. Do you feel now that if an event, God forbid, equivalent to what happened on 9/11, buildings that came down or were destroyed on a scale like that, that there would be a coordination of effort and an ability to respond more effectively than what happened in the immediate aftermath of 9-11? No. And, and it, I wish that I could say that uh, I believe that it would be a better coordinated national response. But certainly nothing that we did in the Regional Catastrophic Planning Grant Program changed anything. Not because we didn't create, and with, with your help, Andrew, we did some great, great work, and there are great tools there that can work to bring together the federal response along with multiple states and the locals into a coordinated response. And, and uh, we did a lot of thinking around that. We did a lot of building. We built an improvised nuclear device response plan, an IND response plan. And if you see it, it's 700 plus pages but it's really, a, it's really dozens of different tools that would be used in that incident because if there were an IND attack, and that really, just to be honest, is what worries me the most. I think, those, I think the risks of an IND are growing. And um, if a, a, an IND uh, would, you know, if, if there were an, a, a nuclear detonation anywhere, anywhere in the United States. The, the nature of the response would have to be massive and coordinated and not only national but international. And what you do in those early hours and early days could save hundreds of thousands of lives. There is no plan today to do that. And uh, there are plans for improvised nuclear device but they're all written within silos, they're all written at, uh, within a state or within an agency, and we need a national plan. And so we wrote that plan. It is a national plan, but, but it's, not, it's not been um, absorbed and practiced because that's what you need to do is you need to practice it. It needs to be a national program where all states and FEMA and the locals are coming together at the same time in the same exercise understanding those protocols clearly, these very straightforward first steps. I mean, that's what the IND plan is. It's what are the first steps? There are five first steps and everybody needs to be able to execute them. Everybody needs to be able to understand what they are. And we're just uh, miles away from, from being close to being able to do that. And that to me is unacceptable. I mean, we have, we have a, you know, we have people that are putting us in these positions they also need to be uh, working to make us as prepared as we uh, can be if, God forbid, the worst happens. I want to turn towards recent events. This year, in a matter of four or five months, we've had several major hurricanes. Started with Harvey, then we had Irma, Maria, there was the earthquake in Mexico City. There were the massive forest fires, wildfires out west, unprecedented, huge scale, massive devastation. I know you were down in Houston 
uh, to help with the response to Hurricane Harvey, managing uh, a major medical center's uh, emergency response function and organizational resilience here in New York City and being familiar, I know you have a, a public health background, engineering background. What did you do down in Houston, if you may share that, and what did you learn? So one of the best uh, organizations that I was involved with when I worked at New York City uh, OEM was a group called the Big City Emergency Managers. And the Big City Emergency Managers is, as its name implies, it's the emergency management directors and, and their deputies from all of the large cities around the United States. And uh, they get together twice a year and they share best practices. And it's, a, it's really an important um, uh, information and, and uh, a networking body. And so when I was there, you know, we, um, I went to California for the wildfires in 2008, and I went to Houston during Ike in um, 2007. And, uh, and so that relationship that I made in Harris County, it's Harris County, Texas, which is the county that surrounds the city of Houston. It's got four million people in there. And uh, I had, uh, you know, I had uh, developed a relationship with Harris County Office of Emergency Management. It's actually the Harris County Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. Mark Sloan and Bill Wheeler and, uh, and Judge Ed Emmett there. And so we, we sent a team down there after Ike and worked with them. And then for Harvey, you know, we reached out to them and they accepted my offer of support. So I went there. And when I went there, I, did, I worked with the ESFA desk, the health and medical, uh, public health and medical desk. But um, that was in, in, in pretty good shape when I arrived. I, I arrived there. It was, it, had, it was just, the rain was just ending. So the storm was just pulling away. So they were in the, they were in the last stages of their life safety operations. You know, the, the Cajun Navy was still operating, but it was winding down. They did uh, over 50,000 rescues in Harris County and, and the city of Houston over the course of that incident. 5,000 of which were done via the Cajun Navy. That Cajun Navy was, was uh, you know, just uh, people with boats behind pickups that pulled them in uh, to, to Harris County and then plugged into the Emergency Operations Center and it was coordinated. That operation was coordinated through there and they did 5,000 rescues that way. But when I was there, you know, I'm, a, I'm an emergency manager. I, I've run the Emergency Operations Center in, in New York for almost eight years. And so that really is is where my comfort zone is. That emergency operations center had been working nonstop for 10 days. The, the, the team that was running that EOC, many of them had not even left the building in that period of time. And so I was really supporting them and they were still doing terrific work. In fact, they, they, because they, they saw the end of the, of the surge, they were starting to get their second wind and, and, and they felt like they had done a good job. So the mood was getting was getting better, and uh, but I plugged into the planning section, and we did um, we did a lot of uh, a lot of good recovery work. We helped to consolidate all the shelters. There were 80 plus shelters in the county, and they were consolidating them all into NRG Center, which is uh, which is the county-run shelter where they were providing a lot of uh, of high-end services. And uh, we did a a program called First Contact where uh, all of the government uh, and, and uh, relief teams that were out in the field, whether they be damage assessment teams or power teams or 
um, law enforcement. We provided them with cases of water and, and MREs, and, and so they uh, would see a person in the neighborhood, they would give those out. And the idea was that if somebody came up and said, you know, I need some water, the team wouldn't be pointing and saying, well, somebody else is going to help you. They'd have something for them. And so that, so all across the county, they, they, that first contact program, we were pushing out commodities that way. So that was just a couple of things that, that I worked on, but, but really it was, it was supporting that planning section because the planning section is the heart of the EOC. The planning section is the brains. The planning section is what sets the battle rhythm and you need that planning section to be robust. And they had a very good one in Harris County, but you know they were tired, so I helped, I helped them. Uh, that's something I just want to ask a quick question about. Having seen the EOC in operation and seeing people who, you know, after 36 to 48 hours on the job, you start to get worn out. And so I had seen during Hurricane Sandy, in the days that followed, people started to get sick, they were tired, you know, that sort of thing that happened. And of course, there are mutual aid compacts where other resources are brought to bear and come in to assist, to take some of the pressure off, to manage some of these you know, emergency support functions where they can to help coordinate, where they understand and can work within the same structure. Everyone's on the same page as far as uh, the terminology and systems and so forth. Is that just to talk to folks that are out there? Um, the importance of having a plan in terms of redundancy and that is longer term so that you have some replacement, you have redundant staffing that can serve not just the, for, for the first 48 hours, but when that goes into the three to five day, 10 day stretch. And then also on a personal level, pacing yourself. Um, I'm sure that you've been there and I've been there as well where you hit, you get to 36 hours and you hit that wall yep. and you can just it's you feel like you're in that boxing match at the 15th round and you know you need the rest and you've been going on adrenaline up till then but then suddenly the, the tank really starts to run empty can you just speak to that I think that's so important and such a, a, a big issue Andrew I mean I think that the most critical resource in a disaster is the emergency manager because the emergency manager is the person who provides the situational awareness, who solves the problems that can't be solved, and who uh, ensures that uh, there is a, an, an orderly response. And um, they add a lot of value to the job. And you're absolutely right. Is you know, in, in most cases. Um, there are too few of them, and they're working really hard. And and if there's a long uh, a duration job, they just get fried, and and so they're not effective. Uh, you know, as you said, 24, 36 hours in, there, they, they their effectiveness starts to wane. The the if there was one constructive observation I would make about Harris County Office of Homeland Security Emergency Management, my friends uh, Mark Sloan and Bill Wheeler, it is that they took that job upon themselves and they pulled together and they owned that job in its entirety. And they did have some help and I came and helped them and others came and helped them. But I think that we all need to be better at uh, being able to surge our own staff. And emergency managers in the United States, this is, you know, people will disagree with that, but this, but I, I believe emergency managers in the United States have their feet welded to the floor. 
That's my, that's my phrase for it. We, we have our feet welded to the floor. We don't move enough in the disaster to support each other. So if you know there weren't enough emergency managers flowing into the emergency operations center in Tallahassee, Florida, and in Austin, Texas, and in um, Harris County, Texas, and in Houston, Texas, where those emergency managers are needed. And that is a problem that we have to fix. We have to be, this mutual aid process, EMAC is a great program. It's slow. The, the emergency manager has their greatest impact in the early hours of the job. And so moving early or moving before the job, you know, there should be lots of emergency managers that are packing their bags and flying into the zone before the hurricane gets there. And that's not happening. And that's going to be our biggest downfall. You're right. There have been a multitude of disasters. The job would change if we had an ability to flow much more in terms of coordinating resources into that state beforehand. That, that's what we need to do. If there were an improvised nuclear device attack, the thing that we need to do is get the emergency management structure in place to build that great machine to respond to that. And we don't practice that. The states are they're autonomous and they work with the locals but there's not a lot of state-to-state -state cooperation. All the states work with FEMA, but this construct that we have, we don't have a true national system. And that's our biggest weakness. That's our Achilles heel. And it's, it's, going, to, it's going to become very apparent in the aftermath, and, and maybe it'll get fixed then, but it'd be great if we could figure out how to fix it ahead of time. Well, there are certain things that you might recommend that be carried out, for example, uh, cross-training between different jurisdictions, training on their systems with their people mm -hmm. as if they were running things or being a part of larger exercises. I realize those are extra costs in bringing bodies, let's say, from Houston to New York or New York to Los Angeles or wherever it winds up being that individuals are there to understand the circumstances, to understand that part of emergency response coordination, what is critical, is just knowing the people, knowing that, right. you know, I know this individual, I know what they're capable of doing, I know that when they show up, they're going to be able to get in that seat and operate and be close to effective to the person who they're replacing in that same role. That's the key. That's the key to it. And so if we could, uh, if we could unweld our feet from the floor and we would run into those affected jurisdictions and work in their emergency operations center in the job, that's the single most effective way to help that problem. Because we learn. We learn how other people do business and we learn how we can work together. So, so working in the job, you, work, you, you learn more in a week in a real disaster than you do in two years of planning or in, in two months of exercise. So the other way to do it, and this is the, the, the most important way is to have true national level exercises that involve all of the stakeholders and we are working the same scenario at the same time and we're moving information and we're working in each other's emergency operations centers and around a catastrophic scenario, a true catastrophic scenario. And, and here is the thing, we do that national level exercise every year and then we repeat it and it's repeatable and we start to make progress in our proficiency and we start to get better at it and we start to learn those lessons and you know that is the only way to get better is to either do it in the disaster or to do it in an exercise 
we can't sit around and talk about it. And, and that's, that's kind of what we do now. We don't even have a national plan. We have a national framework because, uh, you know, we, we, we had a national response plan and, and it, was, it was replaced after Katrina, um, but we don't have a plan today. Well, I want to thank you very much, Kelly, for coming in. This conversation has been fascinating, interesting, and I expect very helpful for the people who are out there who work with emergency managers or are looking to increase their capabilities in terms of emergency management within their organizations. Thank you, Andrew. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Find out more about our programs, including our MS and Enterprise Risk Management, at our website, www.yu.edu forward slash K-A-T-Z or CATS. We would like to hear your feedback on our podcasts, so please send us any questions or comments to us at catspodcast, K-A-T-Z-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at yu.edu. Thanks for listening.